So a movement that has become quite prevalent in our society today is what's known as the self-worth movement. The self-worth movement. The website called theselfworthmovement.com describes the the goal of this movement in this way. The self-worth movement is here to help you validate you. You are worthy. You are strong. You are capable. You are loved. And you are important. Our innate sense of self can be battered by the trials and tribulations of life. And when our self-worth is depleted, so too is our own self-love, which robs the word, the world of our sparkle. But when we reclaim our self-worth, we discover we have an inner life-changing superpower. And so that's from the self-worth movement website. It's not from Joel Osteen's latest sermon, though you might have been confused at that. But we see this, this view of self-worth all across our society. I mean, social media influencers or, or mommy bloggers telling you, you know, that you are enough. Self-help seminars that are getting sold out around the country allowing you to unlock your and, and unleash your inner you. The body, the body positivity movement and, and books upon books all with the goal of helping you recognize that you are worthy, you are capable, you are enough, and you have got what it takes within you. And the key to a happy life, a blessed life, is to recognize your worthiness and to trust in yourself. Now there is some value in, in aspects of this movement. For example, you know, people struggling with depression or contemplating suicide need to understand that, that they do have worth. They are created in the image of God and God has given them meaning and purpose and life. Or when it comes to cases of abuse where there is so much shame that is cast upon someone and they're violated to the point that that they no longer see themselves as having any sort of value they're just a worthless bag of of bones well they need to know that they are valuable and that they should and that we should never treat human beings that way and so there's then i think some worth to the self-worth movement but unfortunately the self-worth movement has moved far beyond that in a damaging way. And the primary ways in which it is damaging is first, that it blinds us to the reality of our own sin and the fact that we are unworthy sinners who are not enough. And then second, it causes us to look internally to ourselves for worth and value when we know that that can only be found externally. It tells you to have faith in yourself, not recognizing that faith in ourself is what has got us here in the first place. So you are not strong. You are not worthy. You are not capable. You are not enough. And you never will be. No matter how hard you, you try to unleash your potential or recognize your self-worth. But... As we shall see in our passage today, though we are not worthy, there is one who is worthy. 
Though we are not strong enough, there is one who is strong enough. Though we can't trust in ourselves, there is one who can handle all the weight of our cares and requests and anxieties. And true sparkling, the true blessed life, comes when we are willing to humble ourselves and recognize that. And so you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, and we'll see this this truth taught in the Word of God this morning. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion had heard about Jesus, asking him to come and heal his servant, Sorry, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he loves, and and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am too a man of a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So the sermon this morning has just two points, each of which are, are going to look at the attributes of the life that will be blessed by God. First, the blessing of God comes when we recognize our unworthiness. The blessing of God comes when we recognize our unworthiness. And second, the blessing of God comes when we trust in the power of Jesus. And the goal of the sermon is to, is to get you to reflect on how you can grow in, in one or both of these areas. You know, can you grow in the area of humility and, and spiritual self-consciousness? Can you grow in the area of, of recognizing the authority and power of Jesus? Can you grow in the area of, of exercising a, a living faith in that power that Jesus possesses? And so to call us this morning to these things, Luke, he's going to tell us about a miracle uh, where, where we see these things played out. And you'll notice that the passage doesn't so much focus upon the miracle itself as much as it focuses upon the person whom the miracle is being done for. And, and you see, that's important. There's times when you know, Jesus' miracles are really emphasized because they're telling us something about him or about his ministry. You know, when Jesus heals the dead, for example, the focus is not upon 
the dead person, but upon what Jesus is able to do, that he has power over death. Or when Jesus, you know, uh, heals an unclean leopard, a leper. The, the point is not, the, not about the leper. The point is that Jesus has the power to make the unclean clean. Or when we see Jesus casting out demons, the point is not the demon-possessed person, but Jesus' power over the spiritual forces of this world. But in our passage this morning, the focus is not so much on the sickness of the man's servant. In fact, all that it says is that the man was sick and at the point of death. Instead, Luke focuses and spends all his time telling us about the man to whom the miracle is being done for. And in doing so, he's pointing us to something. He's calling us to look to this man as an example for us to model. An example that's going to lead to the blessing of God. And so, we need to ask then, who is this man that we are called to learn from? Well, he's not a person that you'd likely expect. He's not some prominent Jewish teacher. He's not some great religious prophet. He's not some scribe or a scholar. Rather, as verse 2 tells us, he is a centurion. He's a centurion. Now, what was a centurion? Well, it's within the name itself. A, a centurion was a Roma, Roman military officer who, was, who commanded what was called a century, uh, a, hundred, a hundred soldiers. And he was in the area of Capernaum. That's what verse 1 tells us. Jesus enters into the town of Capernaum, and that is where uh, this centurion was stationed. Now, Capernaum was a a relatively decent-sized town located along the the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was was fairly active for fishermen. This is where Peter, for example, was from. And it served as a a place of trade and commerce for northern Galilee. And so the centurion would have been sent there by the Roman Empire to ensure law and order, to make sure taxes were being paid to make sure there was fair trade and to function as this intermediary between the people and the wishes of the Roman Empire. And so he, his family, and his men would have resided among the people at, at his outpost in Capernaum. And of special importance is that because this man was a Roman centurion, he would have been a Gentile. And that's a That's a big deal. You see, up to this point in in the book of Luke, Jesus has not yet encountered a a Gentile in this way. But it it shouldn't come as a surprise to us because we knew that this was going to happen at some point. If we remember back in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is being taken to the temple to be presented there according to the law. And as he's going, he meets uh, his parents, meet a man named Simeon. And Simeon, as some of his last words says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And so we shouldn't be overly surprised that Jesus' ministry is now branching out beyond the Jews to the Gentiles as well. But but what we should be surprised at in this passage is the way in which the Gentile is conducting himself. Look at verses 2 and 3. Now a centurion 
had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now there's a few hints in these verses that indicate that you know, this centurion that we're looking at here is no normal centurion. First, the fact that he's reaching out to this you know, Galilean freelance rabbi for healing is quite interesting. You know, Roman doctors, Roman medicine, Roman superstition would have been the tendency of most, but instead, this man hears about Jesus and he requests for Jesus to come to him. And the second kind of thing we notice about this centurion is that we see here he's, he seems like a man of pretty noble character when it comes to taking care of his his slaves or his servants. You know, the centurion clearly cares about the life of his slave if he's willing to you know, cross cultural boundaries, willing to go to these lengths of reaching out to Jesus to save his slave. And so we see that, that something is different about this centurion. In fact, you know, the next characters that appear in our story are going to testify to the noble character of the centurion. Look at verses 4 and 5. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And so, you can picture this scene here. What we have is, there's a a group of these uh, religious leaders, or not necessarily, they might not be religious, they're Jewish leaders, they're probably more likely civil leaders um, in the in Capernaum, and they, they are sent by the centurion, and they come up to Jesus as he's entering into the town, and they, they, they say these things to, re- to request help of Jesus. And we see that even though he's, this man is a Gentile, the, the Jewish leaders, they still have this great level of respect for him. In fact, they, they use a, a term that, that is a great compliment. They call him a worthy man. Now, that word worthy in the Greek is, is axios. And, and it carries the meaning of this man is, is a deserving man. You know, he's someone who is, who is worth helping. He's, he's, he's deserving of some sort of good. Luke, Luke will use the word you know, later when he's talking about, in, in Luke 10, the laborer deserves his wages. And what he's meaning there is that the laborer, he's earned some sort of, of reward or blessing for his activity. And so the Jews, they're coming up to Jesus and they're saying, okay, this Gentile man, he's worthy. He's, he is deserving of your grace. He's deserving of your kindness because of all of these things he has done. And then they you know, go through this list. He's, he's a man who loves our nation. He's a, he's a man who who built for us our synagogue. And that, that doesn't mean that you know, he, he gave them permission to build it. It says, it, literally in the Greek, it's he himself built our synagogue. So he is the one who provided the funds and the workers to have the synagogue built for the Jews. And so what they're saying is, is look at all these things this guy's done. He, he deserves you healing his slave. He's, he's done good for us, and now it's our turn to return the favor to him. Now, we owe him one, and it'd be nice, Jesus, if you came and helped us out. And now the irony here is that in the sermon Jesus just gave, the sermon on, on the plane, 
he just spoke against this very kind of, of thinking. You know, the do good to those who do good to you mindset is not what he has just called the Jews and for us to, to do, but to do good to everyone, no matter what they have done for you or if they are worthy or deserve it. And as a quick side note, and kind of as a refresher, that's how Christians are called to extend grace and kindness. We extend it even to the, <coughs> even to the undeserving and the unworthy. See, that's what sets the Christians apart from the Gentiles. That's what Jesus says. Even the Gentiles go and, and treat well those who treat them well. You know, that's what sets us apart from the rest of the world that lives by a, you know, scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You know, your, your spouse may not be deserving of your love, but it doesn't matter. We love the undeserving. You may have people in your life that, that really aren't deserving of your time or your kindness towards them, but it doesn't matter. We serve the undeserving. I mean, imagine if Jesus had that sort of mentality of, you know, this person's done good to me, so I'm going to do good to them. You know, where would we be? Imagine if Jesus only loved the ones who were deserving of his love. Well, I tell you what, I wouldn't be on that list. You wouldn't be on that list. And we should be pretty thankful that Jesus doesn't just love those who are deserving of his love. And that actually leads us in then to our first point that we're going to look at today. You know, though, the Jews, though the Jews see this centurion as worthy and deserving, the centurion actually has a more clearer vision of, of himself, of the world, of, of sin. And he sees himself in this proper light and he says so in verse 6 to 7, uh, the first half of 7. And he says this, And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. And so the first point, after kind of that long introduction, is that the blessing of God comes when we recognize our unworthiness. The blessing of God comes when we recognize our unworthiness. You see, that's contrary to what the Jews think of the centurion. You know, he he sees himself as unworthy and undeserving, even though the Jews see him as worthy. And in doing so, the centurion is, is showing a real sense of humility within himself. He recognizes that even though he is an elite figure in society, even though he is a, a man of authority, even though he's done all of these genuinely good things, none of that makes him deserving of the grace or even the presence of Jesus. He recognizes his own unworthiness before this such a great man of Jesus. And there's an essential lesson for us in this. You see, when you examine yourself, when you take an honest look at your life, yes, you may have done good things. You may have done many good things. But because of your sin and your constantly falling short of the glory of God, the standard, the bar that God has set, you are unworthy 
and undeserving of any, of any of the kindness of God. Now that goes contrary to everything that we generally think as, as sinners, as humans. You know, how often do we have this, you know, I deserve this or I deserve that mentality? Or how often do we say, you know, it's not fair. It's not fair that I'm being treated this way. It's not fair that God is putting me through this thing. Or, or even, you know, God, I've lived a, a decent life. You owe me some sort of good here and there. I mean, I've, I've loved you. I've served you. Surely you owe me some, some sort of, of goodness. But the reality is, because of our sin, the only thing that God owes you is His wrath. The only thing that sinners deserve is to go to hell for all eternity. I read a quote the other day and it, it really struck me. It said this, If God took from me my wife, my children, my health, every possession I own, and let me die a cold, slow, painful death, alone, dying in a ditch, and then sent me straight to hell, he would have done me no wrong. He would have done me no wrong. Now that's, that's pretty harsh, but it's also true. We are the ones who have sinned against a holy God. We are the ones who continue to sin against a holy God. And yet then we demand of God that you must show us some kindness. You must give us better than the circumstances we find ourselves in. We deserve a better life than the life that you have given us. But there is nothing further from the truth. None of us deserve even the breath that we are breathing as we sit here right now and that God gives us in our lungs every day. And so every time the world tells you, you are enough, you are perfect just the way you are, you deserve the best life now and forever, it's a, a big fat lie. It's a big fat lie. No one here is worthy. And now in light of that truth, there's four ways, four different ways that we can respond to this fact that we are undeserving, we are unworthy, and we are sinners before God. And three of them are the wrong way, and one of them is the right way. And so the first way that we can respond to this truth is that we can, we can just ignore it. You know, we, can, we can buy the lies of, that, that the world is selling to us and say, you know, I know I am good enough. I, I believe that I am good enough. I, I know what I deserve. I know <coughs> that I am worthy. Yeah, I've sinned, but I've also done a lot of good. And that's how, how most of the world responds. You know, Romans 1 says they, they exchange the truth about themselves and their sin, and they exchange it for a lie. And they continue to live in that lie. And the only place that that leads is, is the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness. And so that's the first response. Do not take that route and just ignore what God is saying to you. The second way we respond to our sinfulness and unworthiness is to try and get rid of it. To try and get rid of it somehow. You know, and we usually do so by you know, trying to build up our own worthiness by doing good works. We recognize 
that we are unworthy, and so we try to, to solve that and make ourselves worthy. And this can be through religious observance, you know, through just generally doing good to others, <coughs> to cover up your guilt and your shame. It could be through, you know, I'm going to pay money to the church, and that is going to be what, what, what makes me worthy in God's sight. And this is something humans have done from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, instead of turning to the Lord, seeking His grace and mercy, they grab the leaves and they cover up their shame and their sin and they hide. And so we try to, to hide our sin and our unworthiness and to build up worthiness by covering it, by doing good, hoping that God will accept that <coughs> and count us as worthy. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because that's basically the premise of every single religion out there besides Christianity. I need to make myself appealing to God. I need to do enough good so God looks on me and shows me kindness and mercy. But the problem with that is this. Good works can't remove your sin. <coughs> good works can't make you clean. You can build up as big of a resume of good works, but they do nothing to get rid of the stack of evil that you have done. You know, no matter how many roses you add to a dunghill, it's still a dunghill. <coughs> and when you come to that realization that you can't ever earn the kindness or the goodness of God, it leads to a third response. And that is that we can, recognizing that we can't earn our salvation, recognizing our own sin, it can lead us into despair. You know, the great reformer Martin Luther experienced this <coughs> before he became a Christian. Luther, through his studies uh, at his monastery, came to recognize the holiness of God in in all of its in not in all of it but in, in in a bunch of its grandeur and fullness and along with that he came to also recognize his unholiness before God now how God required complete perfection or else damnation and this led Luther into you know a time of of depression and despair in his life now I'll give you an example of how it played out in his life in Luther's monastic order he was required to go and do confession once a day, you'd usually go in the morning, <clears throat> do your confession, and then you'd go on where you confess the sins from the day before, and you'd go on with the rest of the day. Now, if you're not familiar with, uh, I was raised in the Catholic Church, so I'm familiar with it. If you're not familiar with what confession is, essentially there'd be a booth, and you would walk into one side of the booth. The priest would be sitting down on the other side of the booth, and there was kind of this <clears throat> barrier between you, but sound could still travel through it. And you would sit there. And you would confess your sins to the priest and then the priest would pronounce absolution or forgiveness on you for your sins and usually say, go, go pray a couple Hail Marys and in our Father and you're good to go. And so most of the, the monks in Luther's time, they'd go and they'd do this for you know, a minute or two. Uh, they confess their sins from the day before. But not Luther. See, Luther was 
so aware of his own sinfulness and unworthiness before God that he would sit in that confessional booth for hours confessing to the priest. To the point that the priest told him, Luther, get out of here and come back when you actually have some sins that are serious enough to confess. And then Luther would would leave and he'd go back to his house and then he'd remember, oh, I forgot to confess this one sin that I did and me forgetting to confess that, that's another sin that I've done. And he would be, he would be tormented by this and, 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 and it led him into despair because he knew that there would come a time when he would forget or fail to confess one of his sins and that would be the end of him. But this response of, of despair, though it's, it's getting us closer to the proper response it it also falls short embraces the problem of our sin but it offers no solution it just leaves us in our despair and in the wrath of God and so that leads now to our fourth response to our own sinfulness and unworthiness and this is the proper response and that is to recognize our sinfulness and unworthiness and then throw ourselves upon the worthiness of Christ. I think Revelation chapter 5, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, explains this so well for us. And let me, let me read this for you and picture what's happening here in Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within it and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look upon it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it and one of the elders said to me weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals you see there is no one worthy before God. All of earth in this passage is searched. Every single person is found wanting except for one person. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb who was slain. The root of David. The Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life. Never once violating the law of God, never once sinning in deed or in thought, the only one who truly deserves the kindness and the goodness of God, the only one who is truly worthy to take the scroll, which is the judgments and plans of God, and execute them. And the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that even though we don't deserve it, even though we are unworthy, even though we deserve only the wrath of God for our sin, while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. The sinless for the sinful. 
the worthy for the unworthy, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. And in doing so, God is telling us, stop trying to make yourself worthy. Stop trying to find worth from within yourself. You aren't worthy and you can't muster it up from within you. But do not despair. Weep no more, as the elder says to John. Because God gives worth to the unworthy. God loves the unlovable through His perfect and holy Son who is Himself worthy. John 1 verse 12, Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. To become the worthy children of God. And so then back to our story with the centurion, we see that it's not because the centurion has done great things that Jesus decides to bless him. But it's actually the opposite. He recognizes his own unworthiness. He sends to Jesus saying, I am unworthy. And that's what we are all called to do this morning. And so what are some takeaways from this first point? Well, first, we as Christians need to be to, to have this consciousness of our own sin and unworthiness. You know, my, my kids, they pick up pretty easily on the idea of good guys and bad guys. And they often, all, almost always, put themselves in the category of, of good guys, of course. But I, but I sometimes correct them that in, in reality, you know, all of us are bad guys. And I think we need to see ourselves more in, in light of that that we are sinners, that we are unworthy and undeserving before the Lord. And it's not to to lead you into despair, but to lead you to repentance. You see, if if we don't recognize our own sin, we won't repent of our sin. And if we won't repent of our sin, we won't grow out of our sin. And if we won't grow out of our sin, we will not experience the closeness and the blessing of God as we are made to. And so humility and, and, and consciousness of sin, though it's hard, though it's, it's painful to look clearly at our sin, it's actually a wonderful gift from God. It's a wonderful gift from God that we might know Him more and the riches of His abundant grace and mercy. And so that's the first takeaway. You know, ask the Lord to reveal to you, to give you a self-consciousness of your own sin. So you'll see more and more the greatness and the grandeur of the worthiness of Christ. And then a second takeaway is that if we are truly undeserving of the kindness and grace of God, that we never have any reason to grumble or complain. If we recognize that God does not owe us anything, that what we really deserve is the wrath of God, then any circumstance, any circumstance that we find ourselves in, in this world, is a better circumstance than what we deserve. Now that doesn't mean that it it doesn't hurt when we go through trials. It hurts a lot. And we know that. It it hurts a lot when we we suffer. And Jesus also knows that. Jesus came and took on the the form of man, and suffered alongside us. He knows what we're going through. 
You know, but even when things are tough and times are tough, we know that we're still getting it better than perishing in our sins for our rebellion. And so we have no reason to ever complain, to ever grumble and cry out to God, I deserve better than the way that you're treating me right now in my circumstances. And that's a really freeing thing. That's a really freeing thing to embrace. And so that's the first and and main point of the sermon, that the blessing of God comes when we recognize our unworthiness. Now, moving on to the second point of our sermon, we see that the blessing of God comes when we place our trust in the power of Jesus. The blessing of God comes when we place our trust in the power of Jesus. Look at verse 7 to 10. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now the centurion himself says here that he is a man of authority. He commands a hundred men who are at his beck and call. If he says something, his men do it. If he says something, his slaves do it. And yet here, because of his humility, he recognizes that there is a greater authority before him. He recognizes that if if Jesus just says the word, be healed, his servant will be healed. And he places his faith then in the power of Jesus. Now whether the centurion believed that Jesus was God or not, I'm not sure. But he is attributing to Jesus here the authority and power of God. That's why the king (coughs) in the story of, of Naaman When the king of Syria sends the man to the king of Israel and says, hey, I need you to heal my man, the guy says, am I God that I can do those things? I mean, who can heal without touching someone? Who can speak and someone who is on their deathbed is all of a sudden all right? I mean, is that not the power of God being revealed? Well, this is the the Jesus that we worship. Yes, he's, he's an innocent lamb who was silent before his shearers, beaten and hung upon the cross. But he's by no means a weak man. He's by no means a pathetic man. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has been given all authority on heaven and on earth and who sits now as king of kings and lord of lords. See, there is, there is no one or no thing that can sway his hand. There's no task that is too big for him. There's no enemy that is too powerful for him. There's no situation that is too challenging for him. And there's no heart that is too hard for the Lord Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to him. And the centurion recognizes this power that Jesus has, and so he calls out then in faith. That is the the proper response to the authority and power of God. We say, I know that you possess the authority and power to heal, so say the word, and my servant will be healed. And that is the type of faith that we are called to have. 
a faith that recognizes the God whom we serve, and a faith that calls out for the miraculous to be done because we, we worship the God of, of miracles. And notice the response when we exercise this type of faith. Look at what Jesus says in verse, what it says about Jesus in verse 9. It says that he marveled. He marveled at this. Now, can you imagine that? The Son of God marveling at something. The only other time that that word is used about Jesus in the Gospels is when Jesus marvels not at the great faith of someone, but at the unbelief of of, um, the people of Nazareth. And yet here, a Gentile, one who is not even, uh, who is a stranger to the covenants of, of promise, is, is impressing the Lord Jesus. The, Jesus marveling at his great faith. You see, the centurion probably was a man who didn't know too much about God. I mean, he's living among the Jews. He might have heard them teaching, but he wouldn't have been welcomed in the synagogue. Definitely wasn't welcomed in the, the temple. He hasn't converted as a proselyte to Judaism, but he did know one thing. He did know that Jesus possessed the authority of God, and he placed his faith in that power of Jesus, and we see in verse 10 that the delegates arrive home to find that the slave is healed simply by the, we don't even record here Jesus saying a word, simply by Jesus' intention to heal the man And so, what are some final points of application from this second point? Well, first, do do you live, do we all live, as if Jesus is the one who possesses all authority? Do we recognize that Jesus is on our side? Do we understand that if, if Jesus has the power of God, then we have no reason to fear when we seek to obey Him, and as a result of that, danger comes upon us. I'm reminded of a great great quote by General Stonewall Jackson. He says this, he says, My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as I do in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to always be ready no matter when it may overtake me. Every Christian who truly understands the sovereign control of Jesus over all things can believe and say those and feel those very same words that we feel as confident and as safe in the battle as we do in our beds sleeping at night. See, we really have no reason to fear or to worry. For if God is for us, who can be against us? And then secondly, when we recognize the authority of Jesus, we will ask him to do humanly impossible things. You know, hard prayers, they aren't difficult prayers for Jesus. Jesus doesn't have like this limited amount of power where you know, he gets all of these prayers and he can only divvy it up to the smaller, easier prayers because he's going to run out of power. It's just as easy for Jesus to heal a broken limb. It's just as easy for Jesus to save a thousand sinners than it is for Jesus to, you know, cause the sun, 
I guess that's hard as well, than it is for Jesus to, you know, bless your, your, your family with a meal that he has given you. You know, Jesus is not limited to only easy prayers. We just need to ask more these hard prayers and we need to ask them in faith, just like the centurion. You know, we, can do a, we can do a better job as a church praying bigger prayers to our big God. And so then in conclusion, returning back to what, what I spoke about in the, the introduction, you know, contrary to the self-worth movement, the blessed life does not come from looking internally for worth. It comes from looking externally to the worthiness of Jesus that he offers you. The blessed life does not come from finding the power within yourself. It comes from trusting in the power of Jesus Christ. And so leave here this morning knowing that you are not enough. But that's okay. Because Jesus is enough. And so grab hold of him through faith. Leave here this morning knowing that you are weak. But that's okay. Because Jesus is strong. And he possesses all authority. And so rely on his power, not your own. And leave here this morning knowing that if you are in Jesus Christ through faith, you have more than you could ever deserve. And there is even more to come for those who will walk in faithfulness to him when our salvation is fully and finally revealed. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, the one who possesses